If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Well, 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 yes, it is the Heretic Happy Hour. And you know, I got to say, I'm really always amazed how perfectly um, that theme song, you know, our friend Barrett, he does that live, but you guys don't know that. He does that live every time and he nails it every time. You think, way to go, Barrett. You're so great. Um, you know what? Go ahead and put down the banjo. Go get yourself uh, a cup of coffee or something. Anyway, hey, it's Keith Giles and I am one of your three uh, hosts here, co-hosts here for the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. We are doing a series on the culture wars, and today's episode, we're going to cure poverty. It's going to be great. So, um, Matt and Jamal, introduce yourself. Say hi. Hi, friends. My name is Jamal. It's a fantastic pleasure to be back on the Heritage Capiar podcast with you guys. Um, I am I am a, a fan <clears throat> of the Ohio State Buckeyes, who are 8-0 and o right now. Um, and um, also, I am the author of the most recent book, Living for a Living, which is now out as an audiobook. So you can listen to it um, anywhere, really. Who did that? Who, who's reading it, though? Like, who's the voice? Who'd you get? Actually, <clears throat> this is this is huge. I did it. I read it in the in the in a studio, and it is it, it came out really good. Of course, I'm biased, but um, <laughs> but I think I think I think everybody should get it. So I, I mostly I actually confession I don't actually read physical books. Um, anymore. I actually listen to most of my books. I do read some books, but not, not like I used to. I've listened to more of my books now. And actually Keith, um, don't you have, wait, isn't you, don't you have a book coming out? Um, a new book coming out? Yes. Well, thanks for mentioning. Heresy. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's called Jesus undefeated, uh, condemning the false doctrine of eternal torment. So, you know, it's going to make a lot of friends. <laughs> yeah. That comes out Saturday, uh, November 9th. So yeah, my birthday. It is nice knowing you. It was. Yeah, it's been nice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on now. I mean, there's nothing we could say or do to get us banned at this point. At this right? point, yes. Come on. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I, I guess I need to introduce myself. I am uh, yes. Matt DiStefano. I'm a Sharks fan and a Tottenham fan, and our teams are not as good as, as the Ohio State Buckeyes. So that's right. That's right. I don't want to talk about that shit. So uh. <laughs> I don't believe in sports. I I, uh, I don't, don't root for anybody. You don't believe in them? Well, they exist. I don't believe. I have no faith. I have no. I put no faith in in sports. Uh, yeah. I need to stop. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> wow. Yes. Don't yeah. we have a series? Oh, we do. No, I, I said that. I said that. that? Yeah, I already said that. We we're doing a series. On oh, I nodded. I, I nodded off Don't! a little bit. Apparently, Sorry. yeah. We're back. Well, yeah. well and uh, that would mean it's time for me to make my announcement that mm. we have a hotline. We do have a hotline, and that is um, I'm officially in my role as the director of this of the hotline. And mm. uh, the number is 240-343-7379. Again, 240-343-7379. We accept texts as much as we accept voicemails, and we have both. For the show today, so let's uh, cue up that text. If we could. Okay, this is from a listener. Quote: So I have a heretic happy hour story for you guys. If you're interested, yes, we are. I got no, recommended. <laughs> I got I got recommended the podcast by my cousin when I was having some issues with my faith. So I figured I would give it a, a shot. Now I listen to podcasts while I do farm chores. I was cleaning grapevines. Clearly evil off a fence 
Well, this fence was under a huge tree. As I'm listening to the first five minutes of an episode, the whole top of this tree cracks off and misses crushing me and my car by literally inches. (laughs) After the shock wore off a bit, I burst out laughing because I realized I was listening to a heretic podcast and maybe I shouldn't be. Huh. Now I don't really believe God works like that, but I listened to episode two in in a safe place just in case. Mm. Well, you know, I would say I would say it's actually the opposite to this guy because here's the thing. Yeah. If God wanted you dead, buddy, you would be dead. And I and I think listening saved saved him. Saved That's your right. ass yeah. by having exactly. that on. Yes, That's exactly. Right. That's yeah. right. Listening to the podcast. Imagine if you weren't listening to the podcast, you wouldn't have sent us this text and we wouldn't, you know yeah. what I mean? You could you you wouldn't have been dead. We gave you a, sh- a shield of anointing. <laughs> um, and then <clears throat> if you listen to it while you're driving, you get travel mercies. But I will say it's all about it's all perception of how, how you look at it. Because, you know, if you have a view of God that is, you know, punitive and that kind of thing, then, yeah, I could see how that could be like, oh, just a warning shot. Next time I'll kill you. That's possible to look at it that way. But another possibility is this, that what if, the, and I actually kind of, I'm being serious about this. I actually really believe that, that, that you can read into almost everything that happens in life. There's a deeper meaning in it. If you, if you can perceive that. And I think maybe the tree falling down is a picture of, um, of deconstruction. Like the, the, you know, it's a, it's, it's a picture of crumbling of what, of what seemed Mm -hmm. secure and sturdy and strong. It's just falling apart. Um, and, and that's actually not a bad thing because, you know, you get a live tree, the tree of knowledge and good needles dead, but the tree of life is just vibrant. Look at that. So, you pulled that right that. out unless it, of your butt. Unless it falls on unless it falls on your head and but kills you. No, then, but it didn't. That's the point. But it didn't. See? I know. I know. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay, and we nailed it. Um, also, we have a voicemail that came in. So let's let's cue that up. Hey guys. I'm a relatively new listener uh, to your podcast. My name is Gary. And uh, I live near Atlanta, originally from Alabama. Um, In the past, oh, five years, I've been going through my own, I guess, what you would call deconstruction. Actually, probably the past 10 years. Uh, I've been strongly influenced by Brad Jursak, Baxter Kruger, Paul Young, uh, John McMurray, Brian Zahn, Richard Rohr, just to kind of show you the, the camp I'm coming from. But my question is this, and I identify as an Eastern Orthodox Christian. I love your podcast, and I love what I see God doing, deconstructing people's beliefs and life and stuff like that, um, and uh, the wrong concepts. And but I'm, I'm lately, I've kind of wondered: is, is there should there be something that we are constructing as well? In other words, where is deconstruction going? Do we just are we just dismantling the building so that we have just an open lot or an empty foundation? Or are we reconstructing? Uh, would that be a better description? Because Scripture mentions the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And I'm not trying to pin anybody down here. I'm just sincerely voicing this and asking what you guys think. Should deconstruction really be reconstruction or is it going anywhere? I guess is what I'm trying to say. I think you get what I'm saying. I'd love to hear what you guys think about that. And uh, should deconstruction be going somewhere? Should something else be 
rising up in its place. Anyway, thanks for all you do. I appreciate you guys and um, look forward to hearing your response, hopefully, on the show. So mm-hmm. have a good one. God bless. Well, I have a – yeah, I'm curious what you guys think about this. I, I have a pretty strong opinion on it. I This is the reason why I started this thing called Square One. Uh, because I kind of noticed the same thing that um, there's a whole lot of deconstruction stuff out there. Plenty. I mean, uh, our books are, are and blogs and podcasts and everything included. I think we were adding to that deconstruction conversation, which, again, I think is really good. And I think to answer your question, necessary. I don't think I don't think it's uh, I don't think there's one process called reconstruction. I think there actually is and there needs to be sort of a two-step process. So I do think everybody has to, first of all, um, go through this deconstruction process, which is which is where you're starting to question and doubt things you've been told. Uh, the status quo isn't exactly what you, you we've all been told it is. So I think it's natural for you to question those things, doubt those things, test those things, and deconstruct your faith. And I think that's a very normal thing that has to happen. But I do agree that at some point, uh, it's a good idea probably to begin once you've deconstructed all the stuff that's false uh, and you've started to identify a few things you think may be true, that, yeah, now it's time to find a foundation to begin. Now, now then, then you can start working on the, de- the reconstruction piece. And I think the reconstruction piece, as far as I can tell, is one of the, one of the uh, like there's a whole lot, as I said, on, on the deconstruction side of things, but I don't see a whole lot of things out there right now on the reconstruction side, which is why I started this little group called Square One. Uh, we've got like 15 people going through it right now. It's like a 90 day thing uh, where we're walking through every week together, uh, different phases of deconstruction and going and finding foundation to start reconstruction, the reconstruction process. And again, that looks different for everybody. It's not a one size fits all thing. We're all at different points on the curve and in this process. But uh, I guess I would say reconstruction needs to happen. But then, yes, there there also needs to be some time and energy placed into uh, an effort placed into the reconstruction phase. Yeah. And, and I think, um, a lot of it depends on like how tightly you've, uh, clung on to your, your doctrines and your doctrinal certainty and how long you've done that for. So if you were ever in a situation where you held your beliefs loosely or didn't have so many hardline dogmas, then maybe you don't deconstruct mm-hmm. in the way other people do. And I like what Brad Jersak said in our recent interview with him about um, using the analogy, an art restoration project or something to that. He said something to the effect of that. And, and I, like, I like that um, because then you're sort of like examining something, questioning something, being skeptical about something while at the same time being able to continue to have that foundation to not just burn the whole thing down, which I've had a propensity to do, but you don't need to go that direction. You can restore it uh, maybe without just a sledgehammer, some other tools in the toolbox. And you're always sort of being skeptical and deconstructing while at the same time reconstructing it. And anyone can blow a bridge up or a building up, but it's restoring it and it's, you know, it's renovating it. That's Mm-hmm. That's where some good meat happens. Yes, yes. Well, you know, um, I I think it's it's super interesting. I, first of all, I appreciate the caller's uh, question, and I loved. I don't know. I just something about hearing from listeners. Uh, there's something about that. I love that. Um, 
especially, you know, from the South. I love the accent. So cool. Anyway, um, the question though, I find to be a fascinating one, not because it's bad or good, but just that it's, it's interesting. Like I would want to maybe pose this question back to the, to the caller is why would you want to reconstruct something? Not that you shouldn't, I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just curious as to what the motivation is behind wanting to reconstruct because that's important to keep in, to factor in. Like, do do you feel unnerved by the deconstruction? Do you feel like you're kind of on an Island out there lost and you don't know what to believe in? Because that, that feeling could, that might be need something you need to examine. Um, because if that's the case, then a lot of times what you'll reconstruct is the same, uh, error that you had to deconstruct before, which is to, to find a sense of certainty based in a belief system. And I actually don't think that's where certainty can be found. Um, and that's the mistake. Again, can you have beliefs? Sure, you can have beliefs, but if your sense of being, if your ground of being, your sense of certainty is coming from them, then you know you're gonna you're gonna be you're gonna have a hard time letting go of those beliefs once they get challenged because you're gonna have to let go of certainty, which is a, I believe one of, of an essential human need. So again, you can feel safe and certain without any beliefs. Babies do it all the time. A baby can feel safe and loved and has no beliefs. So it's possible. It's a state of being. So again, that's a lot of things I work with with folks in coaching is help helping people restore that sense of being because that's really everything. And actually, that's where I really feel like your faith can get reconstructed is in the place of being, not beliefs. And this is why knowledge of God is found in the place of being, not beliefs. This is the error of modern Christianity or Christianity in general. So this idea of this faith once, you know, passed down forever to the saints is kind of, I don't really put a lot of energy into that because look what it's created, you know? So, um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, there's a principle that at play here, be still and know. So knowledge of the divine is, it comes first of all, through this place of stillness. And that's really when you begin to affirm who you are, which is why you say I am, you know, be still know that I am. So it's this idea, this mm-hmm. sense, this is not a belief. This is really more of an essence. That's just an important thing to keep in mind um, about, about that essence, about that sense, you know, but the other thing is um, if you deconstruct something that's not real, maybe there is already something constructed. So I almost look at truth as like, it's, I don't have to construct as much as I have to recognize it. And a lot of things is that you just start to recognize once the illusion and the shadows are taken away, you can see what is. And it's just about recognizing that um, as opposed to trying to build something. Again, the energy of that's kind of suspect, I think. And again, I don't know that that's what the caller is coming from at all. I just, I I mean, I felt that temptation in myself. So I just want to kind of speak to that. Mm -hmm. And I I will just say, I agree with you on the thing about, um, Mm -hmm. because that's actually one of the major things we start off talking about in square one is that we have to get over two major things. I think something that's something that actually at its core has to be deconstructed along with not just our faith, we have to deconstruct the idea that the opposite of faith is doubt because the opposite of faith is actually certainty. And so, yeah, we have to, we have to get over the need for certainty, as you said, and we also have to really get over this idea of the need to be right. Um, because, because you can have a toxic deconstruction as well to the point where, so you deconstructed your faith and now you, now you don't believe that anymore. You believe something else but then you become just as dogmatic and toxic about that belief as you were when you were fundamentalists or, you know, evangelical. And then, yeah, you have to get over those things completely. And I agree. It's more about the experience than it is. Um, as you said, being, it's more about the experience 
than it is about the dogma or the doctrine or whatever the specific belief is. So, yeah, I think we agree on at least some, some of those basic things. Yeah, all good thoughts. All good thoughts. Uh, but that, I think it's going to bring us uh, into the next portion of the show, which is the Heretic of the Week. It's the Heretic of the Week. Hi, my name is Thomas Crisp, and I'm a heretic. Hi, Thomas. Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Thomas, Chris, my friend, it's so great to have you on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Um, I have known you. How long have we known each other? Do you know? It's been, I, I think, about 10 years, not nine or 10 years, something like that. Yeah, something pretty amazing. And, mm. uh, and this is the first time I've had you on uh, the Heretic Happy Hour. So it's super cool for me to have my friend Tom here. And uh, Tom, you know, we usually always kick off these interviews by asking our guests, why is it that some people consider you a heretic? <laughs> yeah, so I, to my knowledge, I haven't been called an actual heretic. I mean, I'm a historic Christian, a creedal Christian, um, Orthodox Christian, small O. So I'm not a heretic in the sense that I reject uh, Orthodox Christianity. But I, I have been called something in the near neighborhood of heretic, or at least I've been called something that functions as an equivalent to heretic in contemporary conservative evangelicalism. And that is I've been called a neo-Marxist, which is sort of a, uh, a label that is uh, thrown around to, to accuse someone of heresy. And the reason I've been called that is because <clears throat> I, I um teach and, and uh, defend in writing the claim that Jesus's teachings imply um, fairly uh, obviously a, um, an obligation to seek solidarity with the margins, to practice justice, to uh, care about whether people are being oppressed, to be um, active in working for social justice. And to say those kinds of things uh, can get you accused of um, a kind of heresy it can get you called a, a neo-marxist and so <laughs> yeah so I, uh, I i have been accused of that and um um so so there's that yeah well i you know you may be the first neo-marxist slash heretic i think we've had or at least someone who's identified you know like that's kind of been the the uh target that's been painted on your back anyway uh-huh. um, yeah yeah so it's fascinating, I think, because um, I, I've talked to several people who they don't have that sort of political, like that's not their political ideology. They're not Marxist. They're not socialist. They're just honestly saying, look, I'm reading the New Testament. Um, I'm speaking and teaching and communicating what Jesus was saying and doing and, and, instru- and you know, kind of calling his disciples to do. But by doing that in our our culture, it gets interpreted as Marxism and socialism, right? Well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I'm I'm not any kind of Marxist, nor do I really identify with the the writings or the views of the folks that are typically put forward as examples of neo Marxism. So Antonio Gramsci or Her- Herbert Marcuse. I don't have any truck with. Um, uh, in, any of that, those philosophical programs, but I, I, I read Jesus's teachings and I see him um, calling us to love for the margins, calling us to uh, sell our possessions and, 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 and give to the poor, uh, to um, 
care for the for the hungry, uh, to uh, uh, invite the stranger in, to uh, give drink to the thirsty, to not store up treasure on earth, and so forth. And so all of that implies a fairly straightforward demand to care about those who suffer. And in our weirdly, I think in our in our theological or cultural context, at least in the conservative parts of evangelicalism, where I spend my time, that gets you accused of being a Marxist or a neo-Marxist. And I, I think that's really unfortunate, and I think it's uh, wrong, but um, that's how things go. Yeah, I mean, you and I have had so many conversations about this kind of thing, Thomas, and um, it's that, it's like this thing about how, like, so the people that are calling you, you know, uh, having this reaction to your sort of to them, you know, they're, they're perceiving you and your behavior and your actions and your teachings. And they're saying, that's not, that can't be an American. That can't be Christian because they would consider themselves Christian. And yet it seems like the, the tension is between sort of a Christianity that is specifically Christ-like, or at least wanting to be Christ-like, Jesus following, and a, and a version of Christianity that isn't necessarily trying to be like Jesus. I mean, at least that's my perception. I mean, do you agree with that? Or, or do you see that same kind of weird uh, conversation? Because both groups of people, you uh, and these people who are calling you, you know, a Marxist or whatever, socialist or whatever, you know, you what you share in common is you would all identify as Christians. You would at least call yourself a follower of Jesus. And yet, sure. and yet, even though you both claim that title, you have such radically uh, different perspectives on what that term Christ-like or Christian means. Well, I think, yeah, I think that's right. Um, so my sense of it, this is slightly caricaturish, but my sense is that um, evangelicals in the United States has de-emphasized for a long time now the teachings of mm -hmm. Jesus, that um, the, e evangelicalism is centered on uh, the cross and uh, a theology of atonement um, as, the, as the heart of of Christianity, of the heart of, of, of Christian commitment. And, and there's very little emphasis given to the teachings and practices of Jesus. And um, the, um, historically, the, the branch of the Reformation, I think, that has, has taken most seriously the teachings and example of Jesus is the Anabaptist right. movement, the Radical Reformation. And, um, and so I think... Um, evangelicals, uh, because they don't spend a lot of time in the teachings of Jesus or thinking about the implications of, of uh, the practices of Jesus, um, when people start talking about those things, it sounds foreign. It sounds like you're preaching something else. You're not talking about the cross. You're not giving the, the, a central place to the cross. And, and, and so then, yeah, it's natural to look for explanations. Well, you must be uh, um, one of those neo-Marxists <laughs> because you're talking about oppressed people. Um, so. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, see, it's interesting because you, you brought it back to the Anabaptists and the Reformers. And what's fascinating is from the beginning, I mean, if we, if we if Protestants can trace themselves back to this Protestant Reformation, and as you said, during that Protestant Reformation, right, there were sort of two different groups of people uh, involved in that uh, Reformation. And there were the classic Reformers, but then there were the Anabaptists. And from day one, they had the exact same misunderstanding about or you know disagreement about what it meant to be a christian and um and the anabaptists kind of you know suffered under the hands of their brothers and sisters in christ these reformers 
again, they both named Christ as their Lord. They both said they were following the same Jesus and even using the same scriptures, and yet had such radical, uh, radically different perspectives of what that meant um, that the Anabaptists kind of got persecuted and killed and imprisoned and tortured and eventually wiped out. So it's a very sad story. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not quite right. They got wiped out or they're, well, still, they're still around, uh, but, yeah. <laughs> they're still around, but, but that's right. It, 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 uh, emphasis on the, 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 the literal following after the Jesus of the gospels and trying to put into, um, practice his teachings, um, understood in a fairly straightforward way, the practice of nonviolence and the practice of radical sharing and the practice of uh, radical concern for the margins. Um, all of that got them into big trouble with um, uh, the state Christianity that, that was uh, part and parcel both of, of Catholic Christianity of the time and also of, of the Lutheran movement and the Calvinist movements in the Reformation. And, and so... Yeah, I mean, in a way, nothing's changed. If you follow Jesus, uh, if you if you literally try to do the things Jesus said to do, if you if you preach the things Jesus preached, it it gets you persecuted, and that hasn't changed. It doesn't. It seems to be true regardless of what part of Christianity you're located in. Uh, Thomas, th- this is Jamal, by the way. Great to have you on the podcast. Um, hey, Jamal. Thank you. Yeah, you know, this is a fascinating conversation, specifically. When you're, when you know, um, I love how you mentioned like evangelicals typically de-emphasize the teachings of Jesus and are focused on something else. You know, they would say the cross or redemption, getting to heaven, predominantly mm-hmm. um, after you die. Kind of that's the focus, and I get that. Um, I, I understand that. Uh, it's just a thought, and I, before I get into my question, I just a thought here. Um, love to get your take on this. Um, one of the things I do in my coaching work is I'm a life coach. One of the things I do is if, if two people are having a conflict and they're not coming up with a solution, sometimes I like to take a step back and say, okay, okay. Um, we're obviously not coming to any kind of agreement or finding the solution to this issue. And I'll, I'll sometimes play devil's advocate and I'll say, well, well, maybe there's just no solution out there. Maybe, maybe this is an impossible situation. What do you think? And, and I'm always surprised when people say, yeah, yeah, this is an impossible situation. It's not possible. And, I'm, and then it's, it's an epiphany to me. I go, okay, well, bingo. Well, that's why we're not finding a solution because you have a belief. It's an unconscious belief. And I just made it conscious for them. But they, it was an unconscious belief that it's, it's not actually possible to find the solution. So, therefore, they don't come up with it. Now, when that shift, when they, when they shift that thinking to, well, actually, there is a solution. We just don't know what it is. That's very different. Uh, way to approach a problem. So I have this theory that evangelicals believe that they're not like Jesus. So therefore they don't live like Jesus. So I think that's why they have to find another, well, let's not really. So it's almost unconscious. It's like a filter just comes over. We're actually going to focus on how to live like Jesus because man, we, we can aspire to that, but that's really not possible really in reality. So I, that's my theory on that, um, that they just kind of, but, with that said is like, it's really rare when someone comes, when someone um, is, is growing up or in, involved in evangelical Christianity, specifically conservative Christianity, that somebody begins to emphasize the teachings or life of Jesus and tries to emulate that. And that's been your journey. I'm just curious, how did you come to that point 
What was that journey like for you to actually start to look at the culture around you, the evangelical culture around you and go, you know what? I think they're off there. I think this, I think we're all from missing something. What was that like for you? Yeah. So, um, so I should say I have great love for um, evangelicalism and, and think there's much beautiful and good about it. So I, I'm not um, uh, wholly critical of, of evangelicalism or the evangelical movement. And, and it is my community. These are my people. Um, um, but I, I, I mean, I, I remember reading Ron Sider, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger years ago and being really troubled by this and um, not sure what to think about it. Um, for, for me, the turning point came in 2009. I had a, a, a very powerful um, experience, a religious experience that lasted several weeks. And it, it centered um, for me in, in the Gospels. I, I, I was reading the Gospels and I, I felt um, profoundly broken by the Jesus I was seeing there and, and, and um, um, drawn to this this beautiful Jesus who um, was so profoundly loving toward the margins. And clearly his heart was breaking for the, the suffering of, of the poor and uh, otherwise um, downtrodden uh, in his context. And so I don't know why, but something grabbed me and I, and it, and it, and it broke me. And I had this very powerful experience of God's presence and, and as, as if God were saying to me, he didn't speak audibly to me, but as if he were saying to me, um, uh, follow, uh, f- follow into this, th- th- this is, this is true. Um, and, um, that experience is still with me, uh, every day. I, I, I still feel that it didn't, it never left me, um, um, these 10 years later. Um, and this got me then to wondering, well, what, what do I do? I mean, how do I follow this Jesus that I'm finding here in the Gospels who cares so much about those who suffer, who isn't just concerned about whether we get to heaven when we die, but he's profoundly concerned about those who hurt now. Um, and how do, I, how, do I, how do I follow this Jesus? And this got me to um, uh, studying uh, the ethics of of the love commandment, this, the, the neighbor love commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. I've, I've been doing a lot of thinking and writing about this in the last uh, decade. Um, I got involved in the Catholic worker movement, uh, which is a movement of, of, of radical uh, Christians with, in, in Catholicism that started in the 1930s with Dorothy Day and Peter Morin. And these are folks who set up houses of hospitality where you have believers uh, living together in intentional community and they invite people from communities of, of struggle to come live with them. So it could be homeless or people in, in need of hospice care or people transitioning out of prison life or other, other folks in struggle. And they live in community as a family, um, share their possessions together and uh, try to care for each other in, in very much the way that the early church lived, the, the church of Acts 2 and Acts 4. And so I, I found my way into a local um, Catholic worker community and, and started participating in their life. I I'm still a regular part of their community. Uh, this got me into friendship with Keith. This is how Keith and I are connected. I started reading Keith's blog and I thought, Oh my gosh, here's, here's a, here's a, a kindred spirit. And um, this got me into a long time friendship with Keith. And uh, we, we've over the years ministered side by side and, and uh, tried to, 
tried to be Jesus followers together. Um, so that that's how it how yeah. it went for me. So um, Thomas, yeah, I remember you and I basically in the beginning we we just basically would uh, have these long conversations at El Pollo Loco uh, <laughs> and have like an hour and a half, <laughs> two hour long lunch conversation over. It had amazing conversation, and then eventually that spilled into uh, other things that we started doing together. But one of the things I, I would love for you, if you don't mind sharing is because you um one of the things when you first started going to uh to the dorothy day house there in santa Ana, california the, what they call dwight's house um you just kind of did something really i think really radically simple and and yet it seems like it was something very transformative in your life and yeah i think you you kind of termed it the ministry of listening so could you talk a little bit about that and what that looked like and why, like, why did you do what you did? And then what were some of the things that happened as a result? Yeah. So I started going regularly to the, uh, the Catholic worker there in Orange County, looking for any way to, to plug in from the, from the very first moment I stepped onto the premises, I thought, Oh my gosh, this is exactly the kind of place you'd expect to to see Jesus yeah. walking around. If Jesus were to come back today, he'd be here. And, um, uh, and so I started washing dishes. I was, I would show up every week and wash dishes, but I, I kept losing my spot as a dishwasher because someone else would be there <laughs> doing dishes when I arrived. So I, I thought, well, what am I going to do? And I started aimlessly wandering around. Um, and I had read this very powerful essay years ago by a, a, a journalist, a columnist named Brenda Ewan called The Art of Listening. And she talked about how it, it, you can do great good for someone, and it's an enormous work of mercy in someone's life it, to listen well to them, to listen energetically, enthusiastically, non-critically, non-judgmentally. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll just try this. I'll just start kind of hanging out with, the, it's, it's, um, it's uh, at, at Dwight's house, or Isaiah house is its official name, the, the community that they um, minister to there is the uh, homeless community of Santa Ana, which is quite large. And so the people that are there are homeless people. And I, I, I thought, I'll just try being a, a listening ear to f- folks in the homeless community that are in the, in the orbit of Isaiah House, and I'll see what happens. And that was 10 years ago, and I, I still am there two, three hours a week trying to be um, a listening presence um, it's become more reciprocal now. Now I've made friendships, and I'm listened to, and folks comfort me and and grieve with me when I'm sorrowing. Uh, and so it's moved from more of a one-way listening ministry to a kind of uh, uh, being listened to as well. But um, but yeah, what I've what I found is that people hunger to be listened to, and especially those in the homeless community. The those experiencing homelessness, one of the terrible tragedies of it is the disconnect that they experience with, with um, um, fellow humans. I mean, they're, they're ignored. They're sort of systematically ignored. And when they're out on the streets, I mean, people won't even look at them because they're afraid, you know, you're going to ask for a handout or something. And it's profoundly dehumanizing. And, and what I found is that people respond and, and, and it comes as a, is a loving act to, to just genuinely um, be a listener and, 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 and offer unconditional, unjudging friendship. So I've, I've tried to do that for the last 10 years or so. Yeah. While I've got you here, uh, I, I cannot let you go with, because one of my favorite conversations you and I ever had was when you talked about 
what you had been learning about the Shalom community and how that tied into Jesus's uh, commands to care for the poor. Can you can you break that down a little bit? Because I think it's it was something that I'd never heard expressed before, but it's never I've never forgotten it. And I think it's such a powerful thing that that I wish mm. more Christians understood. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I, um, when I first started thinking about this with in, in the way a philosopher would think about it, so I, I thought, well, I'm going to try to understand in with a little more precision the love neighbor command. What what is it that's being asked of us when we're enjoined by Jesus and and by Scripture to love our neighbor as ourselves? And this took me back to uh, Leviticus 19. Um, where you have a um, list of specific commandments that include commandments like uh, leave gleanings on your field for the poor and the immigrant or the, the poor and the sojourner, or the commandment to make sure that you pay your, your working, um, your, your workmen uh, promptly. So, uh, or the commandment to never ever uh, curse a deaf person or trip a, a blind man. Uh, so in other words, the commandment to treat the disabled in your community with dignity. And, and a, a long list of like commandments. And then you get at the end of it this, this general commandment in Leviticus 19.18, um, love your neighbor as yourself. And um, the Christian philosopher uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff, who's writing on these things I found really helpful, he, he suggested that it, it's, it's notable that you have these very specific commandments and then the general commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And he, he suggests this is a literary device which is indicating that love your neighbor as yourself is functioning as a summarizing commandment of, of all the specific commandments that came before mm-hmm. there in chapter 19. So it's as if it says that is love your neighbor as yourself or in some love your neighbor as yourself. So I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. I wonder if this tells us anything about the sort of love that we're called to. And um, this got me to thinking, well, imagine a community where all of the commandments of Leviticus 19 were obeyed, where the poor were cared for, where the disabled in our midst were treated with dignity, where uh, there was no lying or slandering one another, no hating one another in our hearts and so forth. And it, it, it struck me as obvious. Well, the Hebrew writers had a word for such a community, and that is shalom. That shalom is the communal state of well-being uh, in, in Hebrew thought, where um, uh, there's uh, sustenance for all in the community. Everybody has enough of the basic goods of life. And there's safety. All are safe against violence and against oppression and against um, um, uh, uh, um, uh, other kinds of um, uh, human suffering. Um, and, and where there's dignity, all are treated with dignity. All in your midst are treated with dignity. And, and, and where there's freedom, you're not, you're not living um, in ways where you're coerced to... Uh, uh, to any sort of uh, life that um, God hasn't called you to. Um, and so um, shalom then is the communal state of well-being in which there's sustenance, safety, freedom, and dignity for all. And um, it's, it's the very kind of community that's being described by those commandments in Leviticus uh, chapter 19. And so this led me to think then, well, Okay, so this summarizing commandment, when, when it tells you to love your neighbor as yourself, what it's telling you to do is to seek shalom mm-hmm. for your neighbor in, in, in the way you would naturally seek it for yourself. And if you understand then that that's what the love commandment is, and, and then if you go over and look at the teachings of Jesus, all of a sudden, you, this, is, this idea of shalom is everywhere in the teachings of Jesus. He's 
constantly concerned about the sustenance, safety, freedom, and dignity of those around him. And he's urging his followers to have that same concern. And um, so then um, it, 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 it's, I think the right way to read that love commandment is that, that what it's calling us to do is to seek the shalom uh, of our neighbor in just the way we would naturally seek it for ourselves. Because I naturally seek my own sustenance, my own safety, my own freedom, my own dignity. I just naturally do that for myself. And I think what the love commandment is telling us to do is, yeah, do that for the neighbor as well. And then the radical thing about Jesus' teaching, and here I think he, he blows open the category of neighbor and, 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 and widens it considerably from how you, what you find in, in Hebrew scripture, is for Jesus, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, I, I, I take it the point of that is your neighbor is literally anyone in need and reach care. And, and so then, then we get that anybody in need in reaching my care, it doesn't matter who it is, if they're the same nationality or the same religion or the same ethnicity or race, none of that matters. Anyone in need in reaching my care, I have to, I have to care as much about their shalom as I care about my own. Yeah. And that's pretty radical. Oh, yeah, stuff. super. And it is, and it, you know, it's actually even more challenging to me when after you and I had that conversation, uh, going back and reading Jesus and you know, the words of Jesus. And, and in my English Bible, when I see Jesus using the word peace to realize that he's actually using the word shalom, and, and that's probably yeah. more, and which is a different thing than peace, right? I think, unfortunately, by, by translating in our English Bibles shalom into peace, we have just watered that down to simply just meaning my lack of personal anxiety, <laughs> right? My feelings <laughs> of, of uh, satisfaction, right, or, or whatever. Um, but man, Jesus, that is not at all what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about this co- a deeply community focused, uh, radically communal uh, focused idea of not even just people in my own personal family or tribe or village or city, but even people outside of that, the immigrant, the stranger and the enemy, right? Um, that's yeah. really phenomenal. And I think there was another thing you were, I think you were, when we were talking about it before, you you pointed out there's a story in the Old Testament of a man that comes into a village late at night. He's sitting in this town square, and the and the man comes by and sees him, uh, and that he has nowhere to sleep, nowhere to, no one is no, in other words, no one's offered him a place to sleep, no one's offered him anything to eat, and he apologizes profusely, brings him into his home, gives him a place to sleep, you know, gives prepares food for him, and it's that that idea of shalom in the sense that there is no shalom in a community as long as everyone doesn't have shalom, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. King uh, spoke, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke so eloquently to that. In terms yes. of justice, there's, 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 there's no justice for any of us so long as anyone's suffering injustice. But, but I think the same is true about shalom. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I can't remember. I said in First Kings, I can't remember where in the, in the uh, Hebrew scripture that, that passage was, though I know just yeah. the passage you're talking about. But right, uh, he he finds this 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 man who's who's who's, who's uh, bring there's great shame for the village because nobody's offering mm-hmm. hospitality, and uh, the the thing he says to him is shalom to you, um, c- come into my home and and be refreshed and be let me care for you, um, and so so right, uh, shalom. There, there's no shalom in a community when somebody is uh, left out and is sitting mm-hmm. out in the cold. And, and not being cared for that there, there's just no shalom in the entire community when that's 
when yeah. that's happening. Yes, yeah. is really good. You know, yeah. one of the things, just a thought that comes to mind is um, the, the the passage where Jesus talks about whatever you do to the least of these, you actually do to me. And um, obviously Ooh. that's often understood as, you know, be nice to people <laughs> so that, you know, and, and of course there's so much more to that. It's just, it's really speaking to the, nature of existence itself. And, uh, I recently heard a guy talk about his near death experience. He, oh, he died. He clinically was dead in a severe car accident and had this whole entire experience and, um, stunning, stunning story. And there's a lot of details in it, but when he comes, so he realizes he's been told, okay, you can't stay here. You got to come back. So when he comes back, he found himself in the hospital um, as before he came back to his body, so to speak, he's in the hospital and he's observing all the people. And he Ooh. said that when wow. he, he like he w- went past like a nurse's station and he looked at the nurses and these are people he's never met personally in life. But he said, I knew them. I knew them intimately like they were part of me. He goes, I knew their stories. I knew their wow. pain. He goes, I looked at one nurse and I knew she had been, she had grown up being molested. He goes, I knew that. I felt the pain as if it was my pain. Wow. It was my pain. And he goes, I realized it, this was actually my pain. Everybody's story was my story. And then eventually he looked and found his, saw his body there on the table and entered back in. And, but he said, I never lost that perspective that at the end of the day, like he, in that passage came to mind, actually, as he was in the hospital, he remembered that passage, whatever you do to the least of these, you actually do to me because we are all connected there is no real, in yeah. that sense, separation. And a really powerful example of that to realize when you look at somebody on the street or you look at somebody, like you actually, they're not fundamentally different than you. And we are actually, in, in at some level, at a spiritual level, um, there is just one experience in that sense. That's kind of how he was explaining it. It really kind of goes beyond words. But I think that's, it, it kind of resonates as true as, as to what Jesus meant when he said, look, you really are doing like whatever you do to your neighbor or somebody else, it does come back because it's, we're all, we're all part of the same essence in that sense. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's wow. That's, that's a, quite a story. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think about it in terms of the idea of being image bearers of God, that, that there's some sense and it, it, it's an interesting a philosophical or theological debate, how to understand that exactly. But what, what, whatever, whatever exactly it comes to, there's a sense in which we're stamped with the, uh, the divine. We, have, we bear the image of, of God. And because of that, we're, we've got a, our lives are sacred. We, we have a kind of infinite value or worth or dignity that, um, that every single human has and that cannot be effaced, that no, no, nothing can be done to efface that in 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 oneself and so no no matter who you are no matter what you've done you have this precious dignity um and i see jesus um um calling us to see that dignity in one another um and and it's easy to see it in your children and you know or your close friends or your or your or your spouse um it uh, and easy to see it in in um people that are in your community. But I think the radical part of Jesus' teaching in his way is the call to see that, that dignity in just any, anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so then God, God in, in a very real sense, is present in everyone. And because of that, they've got this infinite dignity or worth. And, and that, that means that we must profoundly respect 
and love and, and care for um, uh, wh whoever we run across. It doesn't matter whether they're our enemy or uh, we find them repulsive or, <laughs> or we don't like their politics or whatever. Right. <laughs> None of that matters. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man, this has been so great, Thomas. Um, I, it reminds me of how much I, I miss hanging out and talking with you about stuff like this. Um, well, very stimulating likewise, stuff. Likewise. So, uh, so I, I know, I mean, I know, I don't think you've mentioned it too much out in detail, but I mean, you, uh, you're a philosophy, you're a philosopher, you're a philosophy professor. I know you've mm -hmm. written papers and published uh, books and things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. If somebody, I don't know if you want anyone to get a hold of you, but if someone wanted to know more about you, Thomas, uh, or to or to connect with you some way, or to kind of see what you're doing, what are some of the ways that they could do that? Yeah, so uh, I have a website where I post um, these papers on um, the ethics of love I've been working on for the last several years, um, and and they're all available for download on this website of mine. So so you can go to Thomas M Crisp all one word dot com and um that you'll find my my academic cv there but also uh, downloadable copies of these papers on love i've been working on where i i try to draw out the implications of the second love command uh and i try to argue that it, it has surprisingly radical implications across a whole wide variety of topics awesome oh that's really cool well, man, Thomas, thank you so much for just coming on and, and being our guest here in the Heretocap Tower. Well, Keith and Jamal, thanks for hosting me. It's been really great to be with you. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Right, okay. Thanks. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. You know, I got to be honest, something was missing from that interview, guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to put it out there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, there was a little bit. But uh, but I got to say, I love uh, Thomas Crisp. He's just been a great friend and uh the guy is totally like one of my heroes. He, every time I talk with him or spend time with him, uh, it's always a very encouraging and humbling experience for me. So yeah. Thanks a lot, Tom. Yes, no, it was. Yeah. Really, really good stuff. And, um, it's going to tie in with our, with our episode today. We're going to be talking about, uh, poverty and homelessness, 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 <laughs> We're gonna and, and things like I got too many nisses. Um, and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, where where do we even start? Well, I, I think by talking about some of the shit. I'm just excited that we're going to cure poverty uh, in the next what 20, 30 minutes. So, this is going to be great, guys. Strap in. Here we go. <clears throat> so, yeah, that's that's kind of a bold ask. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe it's just preparing people with the fact that we're going to discuss something that's been discussed for a long, long time. Yeah. by smarter people than us, but, um, yeah. and we're not going to solve it, but hopefully we can shed some light and insight on some of these things. So, um, so I don't know where, how we want to start. I mean, like I, I'll just say what little I know, which is, um, like I've done, uh, you know, I spent like 15 years when we were in Southern California, um, working with people who are living in poverty. And so I went through a sort of a journey, my, myself personally, uh, and what that's like and got close to people living in, you know, everything from people living on the street to living in like under the bridge, literally like in a tent um, or uh, or living in a motel or their car or things like that. So, um, you know, I, I saw some things and learned some things that um, I don't think I ever could have learned in any other way. But I would say one of the one of the core things I want to say, I think maybe just to kick off this topic is. Um, it's not true that that poverty 
uh, creates, it makes you like, you, like if you're living a poverty that you're miserable and that if you're rich, that you're happy because that isn't the case. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's not true that wealth makes you happy and that poverty makes you miserable. Cause I've, I've met many people who are extremely wealthy, who are very, very miserable. And I've met many people that are living in really, really deep poverty who are so full of joy and are wonderful people. And they actually are even generous people. That's the, the shocking thing is when you see people who have so little and yet they are so so quick to share what they have uh, with other people around them. So uh, that's one of the major things I think I, that we should probably kind of put out there. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's completely correct. I mean, there, but there is something to the to the point of like, it, a little bit of money is going to help you out in that, in that, sure. um, you know, so <laughs> like, I, I'm not against it. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, but, you know, but, yeah. Otherwise we, Oh, sorry. There, uh, there, was gonna, there, there have been studies done about how um, there is sort of like a medium amount of money that's sort of like not poverty, but not extreme wealth. That is sort of a sweet spot for the average, like for the happiness quotient or happiness factor. Uh, the people that have studied that kind of thing. So yeah, it does help, but I'm just saying it does. It's not necessarily um, an essential ingredient. Like you can be happy and be in poverty, and you can be miserable uh, and be rich. Oh, totally. So, Probably some of the richest people are some of the most miserable bastards out there. I mean, that, <laughs> I mean, you know, and I and I work I work with people who are in poverty. One of my jobs is uh, gleaning food from the farmers market and serving it at a local church. And mm. yeah, some of them are pretty miserable and cause drama and, and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of them are really, really generous. They, they help each other out. They give recipe advice when, when they're getting the food. I mean, they're, they offer to volunteer. I mean, they, they are really some of the most wonderful people that I've met. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. It's a super interesting topic, <clears throat> you know, um, simply because I understand what the term poverty means. And I understand that, you know, people, there are people all over the world that feel poor. However, I've got an opportunity to travel to some pretty incredible places in my life. You know, I've been to um, some really small villages in Southeast Asia. I've been into, you know, Tibet. I've been to, you know, in, in, in some, some of the slums of India, <clears throat> really, really devastated places, uh, according to most of the world. But I just, you know, honestly, and then, of course, just some of the things I've experienced in my own life since then, I'm, and the more and more I, I, I I, the older I get, the more I'm, I really just come to the conclusion that I don't actually think there's poor people in the world. Honestly, you're gonna have to, you're gonna, you're gonna have to flesh that out, bro. There are no poor people in the world, so we can't find anybody who's poor. I can't. I haven't yet. So, and here's okay. So here's here's the. You should travel more. <laughs> well, I've traveled everywhere. I mean, I like only. Okay, here's where I haven't been. I haven't been to to Latin America, so there may be poor people there. Um. I haven't been to Australia. Um, Have you seen movies about poor people? Like no. So okay. No? So here's okay. the idea. The idea here. Okay. I was. It, I need to tell a little story though to to unpack this. Here. Yeah. Okay. A context. A context. So, so context. Please. Okay. There, please do. So my heritage, my dad's side of the family is from India. He grew up in East Africa. Okay. So, but he, they're from India, and India used to be like one subcontinent before it got carved up into like Pakistan and Bangladesh. But you know, one of the most quote unquote, the poor, one of the poorest countries in the world, according to the United Nations is Bangladesh. 
And um, I think in the late seventies, they were like, I think at that time they were like number two in the world. They're still, you know, considered very impoverished country. Um, you know, they, they were a colony of some, you know, European powers over the, over the years. And, you know, the, so a lot of, they were, it used to be very lush, you know, a lot of jungle stuff, you know, um, just very lush country. And so a lot of those forests were cut down and some of their natural resources were kind of, kind of taken, pillaged from other countries. And um, that created a lot of problems. There was like flooding because of the, the, you know, the loss of the forests and, you know, there was a lot of flooding. And of course that wiped out a lot of farmland and there was just a lot of devastation and people were uprooted. Um, people were going hungry. It became a very impoverished country according to United Nations. And so there was a lot of effort internationally to help with that. And so they became the number, I think at one point they, they were the largest country and, or they were the country that received the largest amount of foreign aid to help their people. <clears throat> and, um, there was, uh, so this went on and on, you know, and, um, but there was an organization that wanted to try to go in and make a difference. And so this lady who led the organization, she was studying the country and there was just a lot of hopelessness and, you know, people starving and not having enough and that kind of thing. So but there was one little exception to the, that, that country where they were not flooded. And so it was like they, they, their elevation was pretty high up. And so they, they, they got spared some of the flooding that devastated the country. And there was an area that there were some plots of land anyway, that was belonged to the government. And it had all this kind of briar bush and just stuff that was growing on it. And um, it started to spread and, you know, the folks who lived in this higher elevation area, they were farmers and they were, but it started to destroy their farms. So even they, these guys were like devastated and they were preparing to send the men away to, so they could start like figuring out how to like feed their families and they could send the, the resources back. It was just a real devastated time. And they, so what they ended up doing, this organization started to do, and I'm kind of, I'm really summing all of this up. So what they ended up doing is they started having these workshops and in these workshops for the people, they asked the people to, to just imagine what Bangladesh could be like if they were um, abundant. And they asked the people to start imagining what, um, what Bangladesh could be like if they were not only abundant, but they were a blessing to the rest of the world. And then they started asking the people, what would it look like if you were a part of that abundance and blessing what would you, what could you do? What would it be like? And just, they were just like, just imagine it as if you had everything you needed. What would it look like? And um, this lady who conducted the works, the, for one of the first workshops, she just looked out and there were all these, you know, men, women, children, thousands of them gathered. And they were just so hungry, like, like for information, like anything. And so they were just sitting there, they were imagining. And like, she just started noticing, like there were tears, like streaming down their faces. And um, a lot of them started to have a picture of that. And then what came from that, and there was a sub, sub, subsequent training and workshops and what they helped those people do is get, capture that vision and then start the creative process of dreaming that came from that place. And these folks started to come up with ideas of how their country could be transformed. And not only that, how they could actually give back to the world. And long story short, that area ended up transforming to the point where they went from utter poverty to actually coming into the abundance of what, what they actually did have in their land. And they ended up creating businesses that end up really making lots of money for the folks. And they were able to, they were able to do incredible amounts. And what she talked about, she said, this was one area of the country that almost did all of this with almost zero foreign aid outside help. She's like, all we helped them do is see what they already had and what they could do 
if they were in a place where they didn't feel like they were destitute. And so that's what they concluded that most of the country had been told so many times that Bangladesh is in dire straits. All those people felt poor. Therefore they had to they actually adopted a beggar's mindset and got to a point where they only felt the only way they could survive was through the generosity of other people, other countries. And that kept them stuck mm-hmm. from, it actually kept them from moving forward into a creative place where they could actually start to really generate wealth from within themselves. And a uh, beautiful story. So anyway, I say all that to say, I actually don't think there are poor people in the world. I think there are people who have bad perceptions of their life and what could happen. Well, can't it be uh, a case of both and? Cause um, I think you're, I mean, to my mind, you're kind of like swinging the pendulum too far. Like, yeah, a, a, a mindset that is such can, can keep you impoverished. I, I, I see all that, but at the same time, like, you can still have a positive mindset. You could say, I've got enough. I'm going to get more. I'm going to be a blessing. I'm going to do all that and still be impoverished at the same time and still be hungry and still be poor. And so I I don't want to be too dualistic and say it's like one or the other. It can be both. And I, I, I I think um, it's true as well. Like I I agree. I think it's probably both. Um, So, I mean, because there are people in poverty, in America, as well as in other third world countries, and they're in poverty not because of their bad attitudes. They're they're in poverty because there are there are certain people uh, who are exploiting uh, resources that are redirecting resources away from people who need it the most, so that they don't get food or clean water or electricity or you know th- those kind of opportunities are are taken away from those people by other people, and um, and so in some of those cases them having an added, a good, a positive attitude won't change those factors. Now it could, if they change their attitude, if they took this perspective, like you're saying, Jamal, which I think, by the way, I agree with, I totally agree with. I think that's actually better if we're going to talk about like how we help people who are in these situations get out of those situations. I, I agree that helping them um, resource themselves, helping them find solutions themselves. Uh, and that's, by the way, that's a very common uh, strategy that's used um, around the world, again, both at home and abroad. Uh, like community, we mentioned, I think, with the interview with Tom, uh, this idea of community development. There's a, a whole mindset of rather than coming in and, and dumping resources in front of people that we perceive as being in need, what's what actually works better is to come to those people with nothing except to ask them, "What are your problems? What are what are the solutions?" And which of you wants to volunteer to take, you know, this solution and, and then who's going to work on this other solution? And let's come, come back together next week and figure out, you know, your progress, like helping them uh, understand that there are things they can do to uh, help themselves and, and just help them resource them along that line rather than just, hey, here's a hundred bucks. Uh, those things work better. Right? Oh, yeah. Uh- the, you know, when, when we just give when we just give resources to impoverished countries, it really just goes yeah. to the yes. contractors, the contractors right? which are usually American I mean, contractors. It, it, and the, and the yeah. right, and even if it does right. go, to yeah, people, it doesn't actually help. Temporary, it doesn't actually solve the long term. Right, They'll but see the the thing. The, what I love about the right. Bangladesh story is that it it it's not, and I'm not talking about positive attitudes, and I'm not talking about just adopting. That's not what I think happened. I don't think anybody's transformed by just. Having a nice, even though I'm I'm a fan of positive attitude and positive thinking, I think true transformation happens when we actually can see reality 
And I think that's what happened with the folks in Bangladesh. Yes, they were exploited. They were exploited by Western powers who came in and devastated their country. And this happens all over the world. Um, so that's real. And uh, so a lot of those, they were agricultural in nature and all their farming land was destroyed and they, they, they had real problems. So I'm not trying to, you know, to minimize that. However, they, they really adopted the mindset of, we are a third world country. We are destitute. We can't make it. And this, and, and, and because there was so much international response to their emergency and that was being drilled into them, they weren't even getting, they had no idea how they would ever get out of it. So it was not a long-term solution, but it wasn't until the people could visualize what they could be, how they could actually transform their lives. And it, by getting to a place where they were learning how to imagine themselves for who they really are. And that's what I really think is, is the key. Poverty exists in the world because people don't know who they are. That's, it's not, there's no one to blame. Ultimately, even corporations and institutions that um, create systems that, uh, that are unfair, do it on, in the vacuum of people operating from who they truly are. And that's why you have such a gap between the haves and the have nots. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, and, and I think people, there, there are so many examples along, around the world where nothing changed you know, in society to actually equate the balances. People found out how to make their lives work for them because they got out of the states, the mindsets. Now, this can happen at a societal level and we can have you know, society trans- societal transformation or national transformation or global transformation, but it starts with individual people just like it did in Bangladesh. And I think it's that way everywhere. Well, and it, but it, but it also starts with the people who are uh, exploiting others to realize who they are in relation to the people mm-hmm. they're exploiting right. too, right. because these systems these systems of power are not simply because people don't know who they are and and other people okay. and they're being exploited. I think it, it, it's it's the systems that that we create that the, the the rich or the powerful who are greedy and who don't want to help out others. It starts with them understanding who they are too and understanding their relation to those they exploit. Right. But they usually are the last to change. So right. if we're waiting for them to change, yeah. it's probably not going to happen. But if people like, how do, how does anything change? It's when normal everyday people realize, Hey, we're powerful. We got just as much power as the folks in charge. And we do. Yeah. But I, I also though, don't want to say, uh, I mean, I'm a pessimist at heart, but I don't want to say that those people will never change. Um, because I think, I, I think it's inevitable. Like to me, this is part of what the the good news of the kingdom is all about that eventually inevitably yes even those people will change yeah um, but but, but probably, i'm not waiting for them to change this is what i'm saying no, no, I don't, thank you. yes yeah. agreed don't wait we shouldn't wait for them to change as if uh that's the only solution and i do agree yeah there there are definitely some things that can in other words that transformation that happens is probably going to start uh at the at the level of people that are in the poverty that's why jesus goes straight to those people first and says blessed are the poor and Blessed are the meek and all those like he starts with that message with them, not with Caesar and Pilate and Herod and those guys, um, because it has to be something I think that is dim- demonstrated. Like the transformation has to be demonstrated at that basic level first for people to get the idea of oh my gosh, there's another way. There's another way to think. There's another way to live. There's another way to to uh, to treat other people and that kind of stuff. But um, we do have. I mean, when I was when I was working with. Um, motel people in the motels and things uh you know i i got i I did a lot of research about like specifically um causes of poverty in orange county california and you know it it was very obvious like i i just even went and looked at uh, orange county the county of orange published like every year 
uh, a study of you know the county and you know how what was the job rates and what was the income levels and uh, how many people were homeless and uh, you know industries that were moving in uh, or moving out and that kind of a thing and it was a it was a community indicators report that they published every year and that's why I used to get those were free and I would get them and look at them and see like like the county of Orange realized that um, the housing prices the rents were getting higher and higher that the the only job growth rate that was growing for Orange County was uh, the only jobs that were growing were service industry jobs like you know, bagging groceries or, um, you know, being a waiter or waitress, uh, or working, you know, at kind of like low level kind of retail jobs. But the problem is though, yeah, you could say job growth is on the rise. We have this many percentage of jobs growing in Orange County, but the problem was none of those jobs paid enough money to afford a one bedroom apartment in in Orange County because the housing and the rental uh, costs were skyrocketing and they were aware of that, but then there was still no even though they had done the study and were aware of it, there was like no solution. Like, well, this is just the way it is. And we're just seeing this gap uh, continue. And it's because, uh, you know, the other, the other shocking thing to me was re- seeing that uh, that same report was showing that like 80% of the, I think at the time, something like uh, 60,000 homeless people in Orange County, 80% of those of that number were families with children. And that most of them had a job or some form of income, um, but the problem was that, that they didn't earn enough money uh, as a family, uh, you know, to afford like first and last month's rent, a security deposit, and uh, and then the monthly rent. Like they couldn't, so that's why they were living in motels. That's why that we we even discovered that there were these families, some of them generationally, like second and third generations of families living in these motel rooms, because their only option was either that or their car, if they had a car. Um, you know, they just couldn't afford to live that way. So again, so there's a system that is in place that we can see it. There it is. There, there's, there's the system. We we have the system where there's no affordable housing. We have jobs that aren't paying enough money enough for people to afford this. And then that produces the situation where you have families living well, in, well, to- in hotel totally. rooms. So we can totally, see you know, that. and I, <clears throat> I, uh, I, I've spent many years in poverty myself. And one of the reasons I spent many years in poverty is because I was, I was given a system to operate in and that system that I was given to operate in came from my, uh, I would say, you know, both on my mom and my dad's side, my dad's side, you know, he grew up in East Africa where there was a lot of devastation there, economic devastation. And, uh, he brought that mindset to the United States. That was also the mindset of my family and, and also on my mom's side, you know, just a very poor so aside of, I mean, in one in one sense, she had her dad was from a, had more means, but then her mother's side they come from just a lot of poverty, and so I felt that very deeply in my bones. One of the messages I was given about money growing up was that money is really hard to come by, and that it really takes every, all your effort. You have to work really hard just to make it. That was the message I was given. Those were the beliefs I was given, and that became my experience. <clears throat> And that literally put a, it was like a lid. It was a, it was a limit that was put on me and I could not get over it until I started to deconstruct those beliefs. Cause those are just beliefs. And when I started deconstructing, so I realized, Oh, there's, there's people out there that don't work very hard at all and make a lot of money and they're doing, and I started to realize like, so it's not, 
It's actually not the case that you have to bust your tail just to survive. And then I started to realize, wow, oh, so money is actually kind of flows with um, what I feel like I have to, like what what I have to do in life. So if when I started to change, like when my what I had to do in life was not just survive, but what I get to do in life was to find out my purpose and live for my purpose. Then I realized money could actually be a joy that represents that. Those were all systems. Now there, there are societal systems built on survival too. And then there are societal systems built around serving and bettering humanity. And so these, these, these happen at a corporate level, a national level, societal level, and also an individual level. So for me, my poverty didn't change until my, the system of my life changed and that didn't change until I started to have new beliefs. So I think this idea of deconstruction and reconstruction has everything to do with even poverty. Mm. Yeah. But sometimes you got like single mom, four kids, three jobs. I mean, sometimes it is going to be a grind. And unless we change the systems societally, you could, you could have all the, you could have a, a system of your own thought all day, every day, as much as you want. And, it's still going to be a grind yeah. just to make, just to make rent, just to make, make sure the lights are on, just to make sure yeah. and I, uh, you, know, you got food on the table. Yeah. I also think like, I, I agree to, to, uh, to a certain point, like what you were saying, Jamal, like, I agree with you. It's very true. Like, uh, you know, the, this, it's a myth that if you work really hard, that's how you make money. Cause it's not true. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I've worked in the corporate world. And I've seen the fact that like, you know, you have people making uh, six figures who do very little work at all. But then the guy that comes in when we all go home that cleans all the toilets is working his ass off way harder than any of us ever worked that day or that week. And he is not making more money than the, than the rest of us. So it's not that that isn't the, that isn't true. That is a myth. However, the some of these people that are, are at these higher levels are not it's they're not working harder and they are making more money but then the, the question would be but why and how did some of those people get to that place some of them got to that place because yeah they were raised in a certain home with a certain mindset and um but also some people have certain privileges that other people don't have some people are born to wealthy families and and those wealthy families help them out in a way that hey you don't have to work hard because you know you're going to get it you're going to have an easy street because we, we've got money and having money um, makes it easier for you to get through certain barriers where it's going to be a lot harder for some people to get through those barriers. Now, they may have to push hard to get through those barriers and then reach a point where, okay, now that I'm at this point, I don't have to kill myself anymore because I have reached a certain point where um, I have a better education, I have more skills, I have more opportunities now um, that I can leverage those things. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, so yeah, you're right. Working hard doesn't equate to the money, but um, it also makes me think of this. There's, I have an example, a specific real-world example. So there was a family that we met uh, through the motel. They were living in the motel. Um, the, uh, the wife was working. She was working her job through – she was doing, like, online work, and, um, and they were barely making it, you know, in Orange County, you know, covering their rent. We were always bringing them food always helping them out with something, some bill they couldn't cover cover that month. And the more we got to know them, the more we befriended them, the more they kind of figured out what their challenges really were. Um, the, the main thing that we, we did, we helped them with, was we bought them a bus ticket, uh, all three of them. It was a husband and wife, and they had a son who had, had autism. Um, and he was like uh, elementary age, elementary school age. 
uh, we just bought them a bus ticket and they moved from Orange County, California to Crossville, Tennessee. And nothing changed other than their zip code, but the co- and the cost of living, because the cost of living in Crossville, Tennessee, her doing the same exact job was more than enough money for them to get an apartment, get a car, pay their bills, buy their groceries and take care of themselves. So um, sometimes the shift is just recognizing there are certain economic uh, societal factors that are holding you back. Uh, you don't have to do anything different, really, sometimes other than move somewhere else, <laughs> go to another place where it isn't as challenging or as difficult, you know? Totally. To- totally. <clears throat> yeah. And going back to, yeah, are, are the people who are the most powerful, the richest, the wealthiest, are their minds going to be changed first? No, right. Jamal, you're probably right. They're the last ones. So that's why I think, I mean, if you can't change the minds of those who are running shit, like you got to, we got to switch up the rules of the game or something because we got to, that's why community effort and community organizing and all that kind of stuff and, and coming together, the people that are around you in real time and, and there's, there's power in numbers. And yeah, I mean, I it, it, it's, it's, it does seem like an uphill battle, but yeah, if we do change our mind on those things um, and we don't see ourselves, yeah. I mean, the defeated by the system, we can come together and change this from the grassroots level. That's totally. the only place I think it can start. Cause yeah, these, these dudes on their ivory tower, they don't give a shit. I mean, they're, they're going to, they're going to, if they're, if they have the chance to write the rules, they're going to yeah. write them in their favor yeah. all the time. But that's part so, of the problem. They are well, the ones who write the rules and that's why it's right. so hard systemically to overcome it. And that's why I don't think it's overcoming it systemically. And I would say politically, well, uh, isn't really going to be the, the main way it changes. Totally. Totally. Well, it's gotta be, it's gotta be boots in the community. Totally. You know? And I think exactly. the reason what will get people to take action or organize, as you're saying, Matt, like, I think, I think that is a key. It's vital to change. It's, it's how change happens. Um, but, but where's the motivation going to come from to do that? The energy the, and I feel like that's where we have to go within. Cause my, my understanding of how life works is that the external is a mirror of the internal. And I heard someone even talking about that with like, like even how we treat the environment is that it's a picture. So if there's a belief system that we're separate from the created order, then, then of course, what you're going to see that manifested through lots of pollution and poverty and how we even treat our surroundings. And so poverty, in my understanding, before it ever is manifested in the world is first a mindset. And the people who are exploiting the, I mean, the richest of the folks are the most they have the most poverty, impoverished mindsets. And what I mean by impoverished mindsets mm-hmm. is scarcity and lack thinking. The, and they create institutions yeah. <clears throat> that actually create the thing they're afraid of. So that that's my, mm-hmm. that's my point. It starts first in the mind as a mindset. When the mindset of poverty changes, because honestly, I know people, and I've worked with people in my coaching work that they, they want to get ahead financially. And I start to uncover that they have a lot of resentment towards rich people. And I'm like, okay, so why would you want to be one? I mean, clearly not going to want to be mm-hmm. financially successful because you have a lot of all these all these unconscious judgments towards people with money. So that's a huge problem. That's a mindset. So the idea is, is like, okay, we have yeah. to start changing the mindsets of what we think we can do, what we think we're capable of. <clears throat> and, and also you have to tap, you have to get out of, I really believe we have to get out of fight or flight mindsets or survival mindsets to even get to the point of creativity. No artist songwriter or, or whatever have you, any inventor 
they never, if they're in a place of survival, like that kills the creative process. So we don't create, you no, know, people don't start businesses. Mm-hmm. People don't do things. This is why in Bangladesh, that's why they were able to start successful businesses from nothing almost simply by getting out of the state. That's what those meditation practices that were being introduced to the people imagine. So when they can actually imagine themselves in a different state, then they were able to come up with the solutions that brought them out of their quote unquote poverty. And I I think that it really has to happen at that level for each one of us individually. And then also that, that takes, and then of course we can start to imagine a better society. It, It, I saw it happen with health food back in the eighties, you know, my dad was impoverished and and I think as a country, we were impoverished in our health. We were eating a bunch of fast food. People were getting sick everywhere. There were really no health food stores, Whole Foods and Sprouts and all these places that are up now. Those were not even there. And it really came from people starting to think differently about the power of, that they had over their own health and what they could do. And then therefore, the market cre- there was a market created for health food. And now we have an old industry. But it, it starts with people changing, um, changing the market, so to speak, and changing the dynamics of what of what, and then the, the powers that be will end up capitulating to that. That's how it usually works. Mm-hmm. Well, when the, uh, I think, I think, yeah. great, so they can make, they yeah, can make more well, money. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> well, what, what, I think a great prophet once said, uh, when the power of love overcomes the love of power, then the world will change. Yeah, it's true. That was Jimmy Hendrix, I think, actually. It's true. Yeah. All right. Did we solve it? There you go. We I think we did it. it. Oh, God. Woo-hoo! We didn't. We did it. We did. Okay. Oh, so glad. Well, so glad we since, since we solved this problem, um, you all can take the time to donate to us or <laughs> join us on Patreon. That's exactly what you should do. Uh, I got I got tromboned out of here. Um, no, but we do we do have a Patreon, and it's where you're going to get bonus uh, content. We'll probably keep the tape rolling and and flesh out this conversation maybe a little bit more. And that's where all the Bonus content that you're getting on our Patreon site. It's patreon.com slash heretic happy hour. And make sure you bookmark our website so that you get, uh, so you can see when we have all of our new, um, new releases on the episodes and you can browse our store. We got good shit up there. So go to heretic happy hour.com. Make sure you check that out. Yes. And if you are a Patreon supporter, then you get exclusive access to our private Facebook group, for the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. It's the only way you're going to get in that group and have those conversations. So um, if you do support us, be sure to check out the Facebook group. Um, we also have another little group on the side, kind of a, it's kind of the Wild West called the Heresy After Hours group. And the, you, know, you can, anybody can jump in that thing. Uh, that's a lot of fun too. And um, yeah, so I, I already mentioned my book. I don't think I need to mention that again, but but yeah, got a book. It's but, you just, but you just did. I just did. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I just did. <laughs> um, and also, uh, guys, I think we are on iTunes. Um, um, yeah, I, I don't know. What's that? Yes. It's, uh, yeah, you can, most people listen to uh, their podcast, I believe, still through iTunes. Um, so that's, uh, and we're on iTunes, and you can rate us and review us there. Um, five stars, please. Good stuff. Or one. No, no, no. No. Have, have we got any new reviews recently? I don't think we have. Or have we? I don't Maybe know. Maybe we can read the reviews here. And I'm like, yeah.